How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are, another Saturday Q&A day. So, like I said, we're kind of breaking up the Q&As a little bit. Uh, not as frequent, more of just uh, once in a while now, um, because we've been doing it consistently every week, and... Um, We've been kind of drying up the question pool so we're just kind of just let letting uh the questions just uh, pile in a bit more and do some more research for topics and uh, things to discuss and debate and once we get uh, a list of them a bunch of them then we'll do a q a so if you want q a's more regularly you need to submit more questions and so that's kind of what we're gonna do how we're gonna do it from now on and if you got questions, you can contact us directly at christiancoffeetime.ca. If you aren't already co uh, connected with us on Instagram or our other platforms, you can set, uh, send things to us directly through the contact us link on our website, christiancoffeetime.ca. Now, some questions come in from time to time, though, um, unfortunately, I'm not even going to bother... Um, addressing really because some of the stuff that comes in is just stupid <laughs> trolls uh haters those kinds of people uh name calling and that kind of thing uh so we're not gonna go not even gonna go there uh some people just hate god so much they have to rail uh, rail against the faith in some way shape or form so they try to attack the ministry that's at the fancy little block button is for so and those kinds of people come in and just ignore them all right so if uh you have any comments questions issues insights uh discussion topics debate topics arguments fights <laughs> uh please go ahead ask away be glad to hear from you all right so we do have a couple things on the board that we're going to be looking at uh seeing how it goes there's uh, one overall topic i want to discuss as it was asked uh, a few times this past week and over the past little while and again yesterday uh regarding evangelism and how to do it uh, some people really struggle in that uh in that area and uh, they would like some advice They'd like some instruction on how to go about it. So if this uh, is something that you're interested in, great. All right. So as you know, I'm an evangelist. I'm a street preacher. Uh, my primary drive, my primary focus, primary goal is evangelism to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the world. Um, to reach as many people as it possibly can with the gospel to, to see how many souls we can get saved. That's an evangelist, one who goes out and witnesses the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? <clears throat> there are a million different styles and approaches and ways you can go about this. Uh, there's the silent version, which we'll be taking a look at, and then there's the si simple approaches, and then there's the more detailed, like street preacher kind of thing, confrontation, one-on-one -on -one challenges, 
Um, so there's many different styles even in that. You got the Whitfield approach, you got the Ray Comfort approach, you got the, the artistic approach, all these kinds of things. So it's not so much as, okay, find one that you agree with and go with that. No, it's, it, it is more personal. Uh, you, you use you, you don't try to become someone else is that uh, you use your approach how you approach them how you talk to them how, how you come to them that kind of thing so yeah so yeah so try to find a way that uh, that works for you uh, but also to not be afraid not be timid uh, to not uh, build up your evangelistic style on your timidity but rather try to learn to be more bold uh, to to go deeper in the studies in these details so Got a bunch of things to talk about so we'll see how it goes all right now um i'm just trying to see okay should we start with the board or with the comments well let's do the comments first all right so good morning good morning thank you so much for joining in grab your tea grab your coffee grab your bibles notepads and pens and again if you have any comments questions issues insights please go ahead ask away all right um <clears throat> so rosalie has a question here what is what is the kundalini spirit would you please explain what the kundalini spirit is do people invoke satan within their bodies uh it's not so much as satan himself as it is a a, a, a devil um so what the so what the kundalini spirit is this is a demonic spirit it is a demonic spirit that is masquerading as uh this this thing as uh deceiving people to thinking that it's just an energy uh, where it's uh directly linked into hinduistic uh religious practices uh, meditation on the chakras chakra points all this stuff and you focus on these and you try to uh you try to control quotation marks control the energy to wrap up through the chakras and that's what they call the kundalini serpent um they think it's just energy but it's actually a demonic spirit that comes upon you giving you these sensations and then winds up possessing you and if you've done any research on that whatsoever you see that the after effect is downright just satanic the people often people go into absolute demonic fits and seizures and uh, demonic possessions it is just messed up so the whole kundalini thing is satanic and they are invoking a demonic spirit within themselves so yeah it is it is occult meditation is what the kundalini meditation is it's occult meditation um and to go on skipping the one just to because the other question is directly related uh rosalie asks, are all demons fallen angels yes <clears throat> there there is some incorrect teaching out there that there are different types there's the fallen angels then there's the demons then there's devil no 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 they're they're all the same thing it is that they're different titles different names for the same creature uh, the fallen angels that were deceived by Lucifer, who sided with him, uh, they they are known as the fallen angels. They are known as the devils. They are known as the demons. There are not 
different types, uh, uh, but uh, uh, in that, you know, like there's fallen angels, then there's demons. No, no, they're the same thing. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, uh, okay, Rosalie asks, since Satan convinced one third of the angels to turn against God, do angels also have the sin nature like people do? Sin nature? No. Uh, sin nature that this is something specific to the human to, to the human populace as uh, it is the uh, the sin of Adam that has passed down but rather what the angels had it, it is the uh, like a free will that they had uh, the ability to choose <clears throat> that uh, they weren't just robots they had minds they have minds they have their their own ability to to decide to choose and we see see that uh, the, these other ones too as well were deceived by pride and sided with Lucifer and sided against God. Uh, they didn't have a sin nature as they were made holy, but they also have the ability to choose. And we see that in scripture by the very fact that they chose to go against God. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um... Okay, so the other question here is, is there a difference between a disciple and an apostle? Yes, yes, uh, big difference. Um, firstly, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a Christian, Christian follower of Christ. Uh, that's what Christian is. They were called Christians first at Antioch. So a Christian is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is their Lord God and Savior for salvation from their sin. And then they follow Jesus and all of his instruction and teaching and life, and uh, you, you want to follow him, and you become his disciple. Now, out of the disciples that Jesus had, he chose uh, a, a certain, certain ones of them and appointed them as apostles. These are the ones that would be the, the leaders of the faith in the early church, the ones to hand down the instruction, the doctrines, the teachings, the theology as Jesus taught them. An apostle is one who has been taught by Christ face to face, and the one who has been appointed by Christ as an apostle face to face, and has seen the risen Lord with their own eyes. Visions, dreams don't count. Uh, has seen the risen Lord with their own eyes. And unless you're about 2,000 years old and uh, been appointed personally, seen him face to face, you're not an apostle. We have no more apostles today. There are people that call themselves that, and they're wrong. They're very much mistaken in that. They are not an apostle. So yeah. Okay, so we have no apostles today. You cannot be an apostle, uh, but we are disciples. Okay, going down through. Okay, uh, Mrs. G says, why are some of the books of the Bible's authors not known? I know it's all from God and his living word. Yeah, there are uh, certain uh, bits in the scripture uh, like you look through uh, Chronicles, look through Kings and whatnot, and uh, and uh, so, some of these bits and pieces are not as widely known as uh, who wrote them. Many of the books of the Bible, uh, the very title of the book is the name of the author. Uh, there are some that, uh, but if you look through Chronicles and Kings, these are more uh, compilations of individual writings of many of the prophets through that time, and they're compiled in 
um, as a whole work, like First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. But the, these books, for example, are compilations of multiple prophets. Uh, their names are mentioned through throughout it. You can find it when you when you're reading through. It'll mention about uh, certain ones, and as it was penned by them. But um, why is it like that? I don't know. I can't really answer that. Uh, God had it done that way. It's his reason. His purpose. Why exactly? I don't know. You have to ask him. But uh, but uh, many of these uh, are known. If you just take a look uh, in, in a careful reading through, you will come across names and whatnot. Many of these are the actual authors um, that joined in the writing of these certain books. Um... Okay, Sunny Days says, sorry, I'm not understanding your question, I'm sorry. Um, does the useless potter's clay have any any correlation to who gets cast into hell? I, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. Getting so many people stumbling over why God would send people to hell, which we know is a consequence of our choice and why it would be such an eternal torture. They say, why would he create knowing many would be going there? And how? Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so the whole question of why would God send people to hell? Why would he make them if he knew they were going to hell? Okay. All right. Okay. All righty. <clears throat> Much of that, of what you said there, is um cleared up when we actually get rid of the uh errant doctrine of calvinism now bear with me because the idea that god specifically creates people to burn in hell of the unconditional election idea of calvinism that's that's done such a destruction uh, uh such a deception delusion a problem upon christianity uh, many many of people's grasps and concepts of doctrine scripture in regards to some of these things uh, are just all misled by the flaws of this um there's actually a friend of mine i've been thinking about uh, wanting to do a video with him as he he's done a lot of research and debates and all this stuff on calvinism uh he's uh got uh, quite a good head on his shoulders in regards to uh the issues and problems of calvinism in comparison with the bible wanted to talk with him and then upload the video here but anyways the idea that uh some people are destined predestined and that they're going to go to hell anyways and why would god make them that that comes from the the errant unconditional election idea of the limited atonement doctrine of john calvin and all that kind of stuff that's all complete heresy complete nonsense complete garbage god does not create people certain people to go to hell um and that he doesn't make people uh, and then just let them go no as it says in scripture god is not willing that any should perish but the people then ask well but god knows all things right he does but he does know who's going to get saved and who's not right yes he does so then okay but the, here's the thing those individuals that are going to hell are not incapable of getting saved you need to understand that point 
They are not incapable of getting saved. God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself. You reject it. You don't want it of your own free will, of your own choice. God is not willing that any should perish. And if, and if he allows anyone to go to hell having not heard or, or any of that kind of way, then he is willing and we have a big, big issue. He's not willing that any should perish, is what the Bible says. He atoned for the sins of the whole world, even those ones. So he came to them, showed them, offered it, offered the free gift. He wants them to be saved. He enlightens them, shows them, reveals, gives them a chance, and they reject it. They condemn themselves. They damn themselves. You see, Calvinism switches it around. It says, God sends, God chooses who goes to hell. He wants them to go to hell. He predestines hell. No, that's a bunch of heresy and nonsense. So we need to restructure our thinking, restructure our approach to that. And rather ask the question of why would a person choose hell over the Lord? Why would a person want to reject the Lord knowing the free gift of Jesus Christ? Instead of, instead of trying to find, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just saying, in many people's minds, what they are doing, even unknowingly, is they're making God the bad guy. When it's actually you that's the bad, bad guy. Because you're rejecting, Lord, you're rejecting Jesus Christ, and you're staying in your sin, and you're choosing hell. You're choosing your sin over Jesus Christ. You're the bad guy. Our sins have separated us from God. God didn't separate you from him. We separated ourselves from God with our sin. That's what the Bible says. And God is not willing that you should perish. He makes a way for you to escape the condemnation. And then you reject that and you send yourself to hell. Now, the thing about this is it's the free will nature is the, is the whole point in this. <clears throat> that if there was no free will and God, and God only created people that only would believe, well, there's no free will. There's no personal choice. We're all just robots. God doesn't want that. God wants us to want to want to choose to follow him. This is out of the desire of the heart. And unless he creates the free will in this and he instructs, he shows, he warns like the parent with a child and the hot stove instructs and teaches and shows and educates the child all about the stove all about the hot element how it works the warnings the dangers the threatenings of it and and about how, how and how it works if you protect yourself and guard yourself is it is it the parents fault if the child then reaches out with all that information and grabs the hot element themselves and burns himself is that the parents fault that's the child's fault so it's how we view it we want to correct our thinking in a biblical sense and not from the Calvinistic lies and heresies and nonsense. So, again, it's all in how we approach this in um, the biblical view or the errant Calvinistic catechismic view. So, yeah. All right. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Okay, going down through the comments here. Okay. Uh, K. 
Calvin Filter has a question in Matthew 10, 28. Let's just turn there first. Okay. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay. Uh, in Matthew 10, 20, it says that God can destroy soul and body in hell. Does this mean hell will have an end, that people in hell will eventually not exist anymore? Okay, no. Uh, this is where we also got to cross-reference with all of the other passages, all the other texts that, that are speaking about hell, that describe hell, and all these things. And we see what uh, that uh, hell hell itself okay hell is not the lake of fire hell is the holding place of the wicked and then we see the lake of fire which is the uh the ultimate destination of the of those that have rejected the lord and of the devil and the antichrist and all of that and sin will be cast in the lake of fire hell is the holding place and hell will be brought up and uh, they will be judged out of the books and the and whoever's name was not found written there is then cast in the lake of fire where the where uh, their torment is forever, the wailing and gnashing of teeth, the smoke of their torment goes up forever. So we see the lake of fire is uh, is an eternal thing, and the mortality of souls, which is also known as annihilationism, is a false doctrine that was actually uh, created and perpetrated by the Seventh Day Adventist denomination which is not Christian, it's a cult. They are not Christian. Their gospel will send you to hell. Seventh-day Adventism is not Christian. But they they promoted this as well as the Jehovah's Witnesses grabbed a hold of this one and also accepted this idea of annihilationism, of the mortality of souls, though the Bible does not teach this. What they do is they take this verse about uh, destroy both body and soul in hell. They take that verse and then they take um, uh, in Revelation where it talks about the, the lake of fire and the Bicasin lake of fire, which is the second death. And they say, see, see, souls are mortal and annihilationism is true. <clears throat> okay, if you just hyper cherry pick those two verses, sure, it would seem to say that. It would seem to show that, but that's not what it's saying. You, you can cherry pick anything to prove and promote anything. Uh, Psalm chapter 23. He leads me beside the still waters. Hey, I can make moonshine. The still water. Stills. See? No, that's not what it's saying. So you can cherry pick anything to say anything. You can create you can create any form of doctrine or teaching that you want by cherry picking from the Bible. But you need to cross-reference properly, rightly divide the word of truth. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now To be honest, to be absolutely honest, I used to believe in annihilationism. I used to believe that um, the lake of fire was the ultimate thing and that you'd be burned up and destroyed. I had debates and arguments with people on this and then, and then I forget who it was showed me this passage in John and it completely changed my outlook changed everything about this 
because I was challenged with, with this point. Well, there's two passages, actually. Sorry, there's two passages, actually. It, uh, the one is that the, the prodigal son, where the father's, uh, when the son came back and the father rejoices all this and throws the party and then the other son comes and he's all upset and you know, why, why are you throwing the party and I never left you, you never gave me anything. And the father says, my son, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. And the question was, did this, did the prodigal son actually die? No, he didn't actually die. Okay, but it says my son was dead and is alive again. But the prodigal son never actually died. So then what is the context? What is the meaning then of, of, of the word then of what the father say? So we see in scripture there is, a, a, by context of the passage, uh, a different meaning of the word died, death, uh, where we see it can be either death as in physical death or separation. So we need to understand by reading of the whole text of the whole passage of the whole context to see what is the implication this is also where word studies come in as well so we do see there is physical death and then there is death by separation and not actually as in cease to exist but rather by separation now we see in john chapter 5 as well is it john 5 yes John chapter 5, this is where, where it clears it up about the whole lake of fire thing and refutes the whole annihilation aspect. Because we do see in scripture when it talks about the lake of fire, their, tor their torment is forever. That's what it says. That's what it says. Their torment is forever. The, where, their worm, where their worm dieth not and the torment is forever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever. And all of the language regarding this is, is eternal torment of punishment. Now, it was not made for man, but was made for the devil and his angels. But because of our sin, uh, our sin uh, takes us there. That is the destination of our sin. If we're not free from our sin, we will wind up there with our sin. And, and God is not willing that any should perish. He does not want that. That's why he made a way of salvation so we could be saved from that. But if we reject the Lord, we see something else happens here. Now, if we go to John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, verse 29 of John 5, and shall come forth they that have done good, now what is this good? This is the goodness of God, the goodness of Christ, of believing on the gospel. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life will be resurrected bodily, resurrection up before the Lord, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, bodily resurrection of the unsaved. So this is every single person since Adam will be bodily resurrected up before the Lord. Saved and unsaved, up before the Lord, bodily resurrection, standing before the Lord, and will be judged 
and see whose names are not found written they will be bodily taken over cast into the lake of fire which is the second death the bodies will die again not the soul the soul will be separated from god for eternity but the bodies will be destroyed which is the second death that's what it's saying second death is not soul but body of the second death of a bodily death and then the soul will be separated from god as we see like the prodigal son language my son was dead but was separated from the father you'll be separated from the father for all eternity in the lake of fire that's what it says so hope that makes sense and when i saw that i couldn't deny what scripture was saying and i found that the annihilationism doctrine is wrong it contradicts scripture it does not line up biblically and i had to accept what the bible teaches of eternal damnation eternal torment is what the bible says is the lake of fire which is the final destination of sin that's what it says so hope that makes sense i hope that answers your question okay All right, going down through. Uh, now, in regarding hell, I'm just going to skip down to the question by Angela because it's related to what we're talking about. Angela says, my women's Bible study was talking about different punishments in hell. I don't think anything could be worse than separation from God, so what does it matter? All right, now, again, when we're talking about this, this is why I also discuss the specifics now hell and the lake of fire are completely different um now when we say hell we kind of use it in a way where it it it's conflating hell and the lake of fire we kind of use the word interchangeably where we can mean hell or the lake of fire but we got to learn to be specific in this are we talking about hell which is the holding place or the lake of fire which is the ultimate destination this is different a lake of fire is not hell um but rather in our minds what we wind up doing is we kind of take hell and the lake of fire we combine them and create a super hell so to speak and we call that hell but that's 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 not right now the whole idea of the different levels of punishment levels of torture uh what we do see in the bible talks about how how these will receive greater damnation well, this is greater judgment of greater wrath where they'll be dealt with harsher by the lord and on the judgment but they'll be cast into the same place of the lake of fire they'll end up in the same place as satan same place as the antichrist the same place as as death and sin um but uh, that's more of what it's relating to is a greater judgment of greater wrath at the judgment seat of christ um they'll be dealt with dealt with heart more harshly in in that way and then they'll be cast in the lake of fire um the bible as far as i understand from what i've seen in scripture and scripture alone the bible itself does not really say anything about different kinds of punishment and torture or whatever that that's more of like a roman catholic propaganda thing where that where they have the um 
uh, like Dante's Inferno myth, uh, kind of mythology kind of ideas of the different circles of hell. Uh, that's not in the Bible. That's a bunch of nonsense. The Bible doesn't really teach about different levels, uh, all that. Uh, so it's it's in the language and in the study we we see what it actually says. And we can also understand by omission as well of what it's not saying, we then can understand what it is saying. Okay. Hope that makes sense. Okay. Uh, now, William Hardacre, I hope I said your name right, has a question. Uh, maybe all the people other than Noah and his family were Gollum. No, no. They all had to be destroyed because no life was found in them but wickedness. No, 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 no. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, no. Um, no. Um, a golem specifically is a black magic creation in Kabbalistic Judaism where they use uh, the Kabbalistic uh, mystic arts where you need several uh, high master ranking rabbis to use the, the uh, special ritual. It actually this is actually where it came from, where they take a humanoid figure that's made of either dirt, clay, wood, stone, doesn't matter, but it's a humanoid figure, and they go through a special ritual in conjuring the spirit of God in a ritual, and they bind the spirit to this humanoid figure, and it brings this humanoid figure to life. That what they are doing is they are literally causing this humanoid thing, inanimate object, to become demonically possessed, which then it starts animating this figure. That's a golem. That's what a golem is. A demonically possessed humanoid object it can either be a little thing or a big thing and that's what it is uh no that people are not golems Pe people cannot be golems uh now in what the bible says about why god destroyed the world with the flood it talks about because they had rejected the lord they had rejected the lord violence and wickedness were in just their hearts and minds continually they man they had left off the Lord, and only Noah and his family remained righteous before God. And so uh, so God brought the flood to destroy all that. The idea of these monsters and all this kind of thing, God had destroyed the world because of all these monsters and giants and all that kind of stuff, that's complete, nonsensical, unbiblical nonsense. Uh, where it comes from the made-up, fabricated myths and lore from the from the demonic book of enoch and from other religions and other people's conspiracy theories that kind of stuff and none of that is in the bible the bible does not teach that does not say that does not show that uh the whole idea of, of fallen angels mating with women and creating the half demon human hybrid monster thingies that never happened the bible does not say that does not teach that it's because of sin it's because of sin that people had rejected like sodom and gomorrah sodom and gomorrah like Nineveh, Babylon, Rome, Pompeii, all of these places just like that. Um, that is, they rejected the Lord and they brought on themselves great de uh, great damnation, the judgment of God. Uh, but uh, we see before the flood, it was worldwide. And so he destroyed the whole world with the flood and then promised he would never do that again. So instead he uses fire. 
So yeah. Um, so the whole uh, the monster thing that that never happened. Okay. Now. Uh, now, uh, William asks about what about the Nephilim DNA thing. All right. Now, if we actually go to Genesis six, now I've done a study on this before. I did this over on Instagram last week. I did a, a short video on Instagram uh, on on this because a whole bunch of people are asking me about this. So I did a short video explaining this. I've explained it here a number of times. I'll do it again. Only takes a minute. But if you take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. All right. One of my favorite bookmarks. Drink coffee and read your Bible. On the back, I got the three points of Bible study. You can get these uh, from a link on our website if you want. Okay, Genesis chapter 6. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, and uh, we just want to look at the first four verses, and it explains the whole thing. Now, again, I want to reiterate. The fallen angels coming down, mating with women, and creating the half-demon-human hybrid monster Nephilim thingies, that never happened. What they do is they cherry-pick and twist, they horribly twist, Genesis 6 and the first four verses of Genesis 6. Now, what is it actually saying? Alright, now, again, to be honest... I actually used to believe, like very strongly, used to believe the whole fallen angels, many women creating these monster things and the giants. I used to believe that. But then I had an individual actually walk me through Genesis 6. Like, I'm going to walk you through. And he showed me this, like, I'm going to show you. And it was like a light bulb. It just made so much sense. And I saw the truth. And I rejected that whole previous notion and I accepted what the Bible actually says. Let me just show you. Okay. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Now we go very slowly, point by point, word by word. Genesis 6, verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters are born unto them. Okay. This is just population explosion. That people are spreading across the world. Time is going by. Now, while this is happening, verse 2, that the sons of God, hold up. The first thing you need to understand is nowhere in the entirety of the word of God are fallen angels, devils, demons, any of that, are they ever called sons of god they are only called the enemies of god filthy beasts liars deceivers murderers the servants of satan um, they are the accursed the abomination they are never ever called sons of god the sons of god term is a term that is only given to the actual servant angels of god or to righteous male servants of god humans righteous human male servants of god all right so it's either one of these two in the context but it tells us maybe we keep going so during this time verse 2 that the sons of god saw the daughters of men that they were fair hold up 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, word fair. The word fair in the original Hebrew. Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. And we go to the original Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts of the scriptures. Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, word fair means righteous goodness, not beauty. It means righteous goodness, not beauty. Yeah, I know. Michael Heiser is a liar and deceiver. He corrupts the scriptures. He's not someone you should listen to. Okay, so the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were righteously good. So these are righteously good, righteous female servants of God. So that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Hold up. Jesus said in the Gospels that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. The angels of God do not marry. Also, FYI, if we just go down in verse 4, it talks about how the sons of God were the daughters of men that they, that they had children with them. Um, just a minute. Angels cannot procreate. As Jesus says, we will be like the angels. We neither marry nor are given a marriage. And now also, angels don't procreate. Angels can't create life. And we see in Psalms, is it 135, verses 13 to 16? God creates life in the womb. God creates the living souls, not angels. So context here then of sons of god is righteous male servants of god humans righteous male human servants of god taking righteous female servants of god and they took the wise all which they chose verse three and the lord said my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh yet his day shall be 120 years what's he talking about the flood will be it will be uh, take 120 years to build the ark so during this time, verse 4, there were giants in the earth. Okay, hold up. The word giant in Hebrew is Nephilim. Now, the word Nephilim has zero mystic divine connotation. Nephilim is literally, simply, just meaning an abnormally big person like Goliath, Og, king of Bashan, uh, the sons of Anak in the time of uh, Joshua going into the promised land, or NBA basketball players, NFL linebackers, world championships, strongmen, powerlifters, Robert Wadlow, all of these individuals that are abnormally big. Now, is Goliath or NBA basketball players, are they... Or, or you look at the, uh, the the people, certain people in Africa, the Zulus, they're giants. Are they the offspring of demons mating with women? No, that's stupid. They're just abnormally big people, like uh, like King Saul. King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody. Technically, he would fall under that category. So there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. And also after what? Verse 4. And also after that. After what? Verse 3. After the flood. Okay, but hold up just a minute. In Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, talking about the flood, it says in Genesis chapter 7, 
in Genesis chapter 7, uh, verse 20, 15 cubits, 30 feet, give or take, about 30 feet. But 30 feet upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. What that means is the highest mountain, the water was 30 feet above the highest mountain. And the mountains are covered. And all flesh died and that, that moved on the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both men and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only, specific words, Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. That means nothing outside of the ark survived people say well certain nephilim survived the bible says only noah and his family remained and that which is on the ark everything else died so okay go back to genesis 6 and also after that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that also after the flood so so therefore going by the word of god if only Noah and his family survived the flood, where did the genetics for giantism come from? Cue the Jeopardy theme music. From Noah and his family. Because genetics for giantism is not demonic. It is not some mystic, demonic, fallen angel thing nonsense. It's just giantism genetics. And if only no one his family remained, then the genetics came from them. Because I personally believe and ascribe to the belief that Noah and his family were giants. It makes sense. Also in the whole building of the ark thing. That would have helped because the ark was absolutely massive. And so yeah. I believe Noah and his family were giants. And as it says, they were righteous before God. And giantism is not demonic. It's just a genetic aberration. Uh, and it just, that's what it was. There were giants land in those days and also after the flood. Well, then where did the giants come from after the flood? If everything was destroyed, it would have come from Noah and his family. So there you go. So the whole Nephilim conspiracy monster thing is a bunch of nonsense. I guess we take a look. Read the last bit of verse four. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God, the righteous human male servants of God, came in unto the daughters of men, the righteous female servants of God, and they bare them children. The offspring of these were righteous children. The same became mighty men, which of old men of renown. So yeah. So the whole offspring of the sons of god that's righteous human male servants of god taking righteous female servants of god and the offspring were mighty men which are full men of renown like noah so there you go hope that helps okay going down through the comments is there anything okay so sunny day says michael heiser please stop listening 
to that man. Michael Heiser does not know what he's talking about. His teachings are severely unbiblical. He's taking all kinds of other garbage and heresies and nonsense and dragging it into the Bible, taking other sources and, and twisting the scriptures to fit in line with these other sources. He's teaching um, unbiblical angelology, unbiblical demonology, unbiblical other doctrines and teachings. Michael Heiser is not uh, an individual that a Christian should listen to. I'm not saying he's not a Christian. I'm saying he's severely corrupted and he does not know what he's talking about. Stop listening to Heiser. If you have his books, throw them out. Okay. <clears throat> Is there any other related to this? So yeah, uh, William uh, Hardacre, I hope I answered your question sufficiently. Hope that makes sense. And if you see that, like I showed you, and just do study on that, just use the Bible alone. You'll see that this is what it's actually talking about. And the whole conspiracy of the demonic Nephilim monster thingy is a bunch of nonsense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. So going down through here, Abby has a question. Were dinosaurs extinct because of the flood or because they were hunted? Both. Both. Uh, now, we see in the Bible, it talks about Noah's Ark. Let, let me just pull up. Actually, I should use this. Give me one second. Noah's Ark. All right. <clears throat> now, firstly, we need to understand <clears throat> a couple things. When approaching the whole dinosaur thing, and I love the whole dinosaur studies in the Bible. It's it's great. Uh, I did a whole video um, specifically about that a while ago. Now, the first thing you need to understand, there were dinosaurs. There is a sect of people out there that are completely off their rocker. They believe, and they firmly believe, that dinosaurs were made up by evolutionists that it's a satanic lie and that the bones that they're discovering satan put the bones in the ground to deceive people please please dinosaurs did exist but just the age is what is completely nonsense well this dinosaur lived 5.326 billion years ago and this dinosaur lived 3.57 million years ago it's a bunch of nonsense all right yeah and that yeah exactly that the t-rex devolved into the farm chicken i actually came across that again on instagram there is this one account that's a science research uh, instagram account uh, an education account and they actually put up a post all about how the T-Rex literally e devolved into the farm chicken. That the farm chicken is a direct descendant of the T-Rex. <laughs> Seriously. So stupid. Okay, now, the millions, billions, years ago thing is a bunch of nonsense. That doesn't exist. Um, the As the Bible teaches, is young earth creationism. That's what the Bible teaches. And if you disagree with that, well, all right, we need to, we need to have a chat. All right, but that dinosaurs did exist. There were the there were the T-Rexes and the Velociraptors and the Brontosaurus and the Stegosaurus and the Triceratops, all that. They did exist. They're 100% real. 
all right now it's just about okay how does it work now with the whole flood thing well the bible talks about of uh, certain beasts you know two by two so, some groups of five some seven certain ones that certain number of certain ones and people say well it just is not physically possible to get that many animals on the ark all right i have two points to pose to you that will completely change your outlook on that all right number one now the bible does not say but since god is smart and noah is smart and you have a large boat that you need all these animals on it would make more sense in all logic and reasoning if they were babies think about this one for a moment they live longer after the flood and they would live long enough to to repopulate and they would eat less you would need less food less storage it would take up less space and they would live longer and populate longer Think about that one just for a moment. This is a theory that that 100% fits. Now, we take a look then at the size of the ark. This is the other problem with people with this one, is that they don't fully understand and grasp the concept of just how big Noah's ark was. It wasn't just a little rowboat. <laughs> it was a giant, massive barge. Okay. It was a massive barge. Now, according to the Bible, when you go through uh, the dimensions that, that God gives Noah, and you break it down and you take a look at, at what this is. Okay, now what is a cubit? A cubit, now that you have to give or take a little bit of, uh, of, of size with this, but a cubit is from the point of the elbow to the fingertip. And it generally was going by the king's cubit is you measure the cubit of the king and that would be the royal cubit that they'd be using so generally it's from elbow point to finger finger point is a cubit now if you measure by cubits you're just looking over about two feet generally or give or take depending on the size of the person's arm now is it possible that noah's cubit could have been bigger because he was a giant so our dimensions here could be way off if Noah's cubit was a lot bigger. Just that's a hypothetical. However, if, if we go by the standard cubit of a six-foot man today, all right, just a regular six-foot man's cubit, what you get, is that out of the dimensions of the ark mentioned in the Bible, Noah's ark, you ready for this? Was 2,778,900 cubic feet. 2,778,900 cubic feet. That's how big Noah's Ark was, according to the dimensions in the Bible. So, 
if you actually break this down another way my, my dad's a bit of a mathematician and he likes to break things down in other ways so you can get a better visual and understanding of this okay so if we actually break that mass down to another way uh, of explaining okay at our church uh the one room that's in our church is uh um 33 feet long 24 feet wide and 10 and a half feet high one of the rooms in our church so it's it's 33 feet long 24 feet wide 10 and a half feet high you would need 334 of those rooms 334 of those rooms end to end and it would stretch two and a quarter miles. That's a lot of space. 334 of those rooms end to end stretching two and a quarter miles. This is just another visual just to help you to understand the sheer vast immensity of Noah's Ark. Okay, it would be very easy <laughs> to get all of those creatures on there, especially if they were younger. If they were younger, they would take up less room, less uh, take less space. They need less food, easier storage, and they'd live longer, populate longer. You see, viability is a lot easier you don't need giant fully grown brontosauruses you just need a little one see what i mean so there you go now with the whole dinosaur thing okay afterwards we see them going out and repopulating all this kind of thing what was happening um if you take a look at a book in the beginning by walter brown he has he makes some excellent points on this on what what happened with the uh ecosystem and the changes and the seasons and everything and how it changed the world it changed everything where before the flood it was like a greenhouse they had the greenhouse effect everything was bigger and everything lived longer a lot more food and after the flood it changed it up so think some creatures died off and then we see uh cer certain creatures like you see the dragon myths the knights hunting dragons well uh, the old word for dinosaur was dragon FYI, dinosaur was coined in the 1500s. Dinosaurs coined in the 1500s, where before that, they were called dragons. And everybody was killing dragons. It's easy hunting for food, hunting for sport, and hunting for safety reasons, whatever. And certain ones are killed off. We see it happen today where, you know, certain creatures like wolves, we see the mass hunting of wolves because they were dangerous to farms. The hunting of certain dangerous wildcats, tigers, and man-eating lions would be killed off. That's just, that's just how, how it happened. And not all dinosaurs are gone. There are still some alive today. Just the scientists don't want you to know that, don't want you to believe that, because that kind of contradicts atheism and evolution. 
All right, and yes, uh, as you're mentioning Job 41 Behemoth, Behemoth was a dinosaur, like a Brontosaurus type. Leviathan was a fire-breathing dragon because they lived, they're 100% real, they did exist. The Bible says so. It talks about the Leviathan with his scales and his teeth, and he, he breathed fire out of his nose. It's not a made-up creature, it's 100% real. And the, and the Bible, God talks about it as a very real creature, so therefore it's real, Behemoth was real. Just as the Bible talks about lambs and lions and snakes and wolves and goats and all kinds of other creatures, they're 100% real, so why wouldn't these be? Uh, people just deny it because they just don't want to believe it. But the Bible says it's real, it does exist, it's, it therefore did exist. So yeah. And creeping things, yes, creeping things and small creatures and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so uh, back up here, talking about this. Okay, uh, Dev says, who helped Noah build the ark? His sons. The Bible says his sons. Now, there's the uh, absolute garbage mythology of the Roman Catholic cult. Where they have all kinds of other nonsense other they say that that fallen angels devils who were rock monsters came and they helped noah build the ark that's a bunch of stupid garbage nonsense uh no fallen angels did not help noah build the ark angels did not help noah build the ark only noah and his sons they built the ark it took 120 years to build the ark that's what the bible says so he and his sons built the ark and if they were giants it would that would have really helped a lot because you think about it, you have to cut down the tree and then you have to shape the shape you have to carve it and plane it and you have to create the boards you have to create the logs you have to, uh, to drill they have they didn't have power tools like we have today that so all hand tools and everything else so it would have taken a very 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 long time 120 years but if they were giants it, it, that would have really aided things so yeah but uh yeah <clears throat> But the, the the whole demonic giant thing, the rock monsters, they did not help build the ark. That is Roman Catholic propaganda nonsense garbage. Uh, that's that was actually uh, perpetrated from a Roman Catholic mystic nun. She had visions of this, and she wrote it down, and it was uh, and the Pope agreed with it, and then perpetrated through the Roman Catholic cult. A Roman Catholic mystic nun had visions of these rock monsters helping noah build the ark that's actually where that came from it's a bunch of demonic nonsense okay but anyways let's go down through um okay so with that um I hope that covers up that one sufficiently. Now, I want to move on to what we were talking about yesterday. There were some uh, some questions that came up from certain people regarding evangelism, how to evangelize, um, tips and tricks and techniques and things to help them with this, to learn how to witness, how to evangelize, how to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the public. Uh, some people really struggle with this. They, they just don't know what to say, how to say it, how to go about to witness. So I want to walk you through this, some techniques and things that uh, I learned 
um, that helped me in my evangelism. As like I mentioned, I am an evangelist. I'm a street preacher. Um, uh, the old the old world term is a gospeler. That's what I am. I'm a gospeler. Uh, I specialize in the gospel. I specialize in proving the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the mighty God manifested in the flesh. I specialize in proving and debating, defending uh, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, by belief alone. This is These are my uh, specialties, and that's what I take out into the public and present to people. Now, uh, with this, how can a person learn to witness, to evangelize. Now, not all people have the spiritual gift of evangelism like my, like myself, like how I have. I have the gift of evangelism. Not all people have this gift, but all born-again Christians are called to witness. You don't need to be a pastor or preacher to be able to witness the gospel. Uh, uh, now, witnessing the gospel is literally just telling uh, the other person how they can be saved. If you do not know, if you yourself, listener, if you yourself do not know how to explain just simply how can I be saved, who Jesus is and why he came and saved from what, and the basics of the faith, if you don't know how to explain that, what makes you think you're saved? Because you're just telling other person what you believed in to get saved. But if you don't know how to talk about that, what makes you think you're saved? We'll start with that. We'll start with that. Now, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ just going out and calling sinners to church where they sit in the pews and they listen and, and then they become a Christian by going to church, by being religious? No, no. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by righteous works. We're not saved by water baptism. We're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by reading the Bible. We're not saved by praying. We're not saved by doing the good deeds and this and that and the other thing. We're not saved by keeping law. We're not saved by works of religiosity. We're saved by one thing and one thing alone. And that is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So we got to break this down then because while well, Roman Catholics will agree to that and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and the Adventists and all the cults will say will say that because they all believe in Jesus too, right? Well, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? Okay, but, 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 and this is where we got to start fine tuning. Which Jesus? Is the Jesus of the Bible the same as the Jesus of Roman Catholicism? No. Not even close. Is the Jesus of the Bible the same as the Jesus of the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists? No, not even close. The Jesus of the Bible is Almighty Lord God manifested in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful, the Counselor, the One whose ways are of old, even of everlasting, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, uh, that is the Creator of all things, come down, manifested in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now, how does He save us? Well, He gave Himself, as it says in Acts 20, verse 28, God purchased the church with His own blood. Don't worry, I'll be breaking this all down. That God Himself gave Himself self-sacrificing love and that he that the wages of sin is death 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So because of our sins, there had to be death and blood for sin. He gave himself and he rose again from the grave to show you his power over life and death, just like he said. And salvation is now believing on what he did for me. Grace, now the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, by belief alone, period. Not by works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law, not by water baptism, not by any other thing or any other name or any other power, but by what Jesus Christ did and what he did alone, period. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. That I didn't merit it. I didn't earn it. It's not a reward. I don't deserve it. But he gave it to me anyways because he so loved me. So you got to understand the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, you got to understand the person of Jesus Christ according to the word of God in detail. And salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. These are the two pillars that the entirety of the born-again Christian faith are built on. These two pillars. The deity of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace. All you got to do is understand these two things and then you build it up from there. So your foundation of evangelism and witnessing are these two things. Learn these two things. The meaning of grace, salvation by grace, and the meaning of the deity, the person, the identity of Jesus. And I'll walk you through this. <clears throat> so, let's start with the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, this one, we can make it really in-depth. Or we could just kind of just skip the stone across the surface. And I think what I'll do is I'll just skip the stone because I've gone, I've done videos going into great detail uh, on, on this. So if you want to look up in our YouTube channel, in the playlists, according to the Bible, you'll find a video, the deity of Jesus Christ. I have a few videos actually going into great detail on this one, the deity of Jesus Christ. And so watch one of those and I give you all the passages, all the arguments proving this, but, uh, but simply sufficiently, uh, I think, I think for this, I'll just skip the stone across the surface here and I'll use like what I use when I'm doing my street preaching. <clears throat> what I do is I start with John chapter four. When I, when I'm doing my street preaching, doing my evangelism, I always start with this, uh, uh, prefacing it all off with John chapter four, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Because people out there say they believe in Jesus. They'll say Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is, is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not God. They'll deny that he is God, but they'll agree that he's all these other things. But that in of itself doesn't make sense because you say Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord, but you say he's not God. Uh, do you not even realize what you're saying? Because... When we take a look at the word Messiah, you take a look at the word Christ, you do understand, right? Now I'm speaking all generically in general to anyone who's listening. You do realize that Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? Jesus, his last name is not Christ. Christ 
is the title description of who he is. Jesus is the Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means the anointed one, the promised one, the prophesied one, the Messiah, which is because we take a look at John chapter 4. Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And we go to verse 25, John 4, verse 25. The woman at the well, talking with Jesus, Samaritan woman, says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Verse 26. Jesus says to her, I that speak unto thee am he. So by these two verses, we can establish that Jesus is absolutely clearly affirming that he himself is the Christ Messiah. Now it's up to us to understand what that means. So we then go to Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Acts 10, 43. This is the next verse that I say when I'm street preaching. I go from John 4 to Acts 10, 43. If you're taking notes. Acts 10, 43. To him, notice he's talking about talking about Jesus. To him give all the prophets witness. That's Old Testament. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Who are the prophets giving witness to? Who are they speaking of? Who are they testifying about? Who are they prophesying of? Let's go back to Isaiah. Old Testament, Isaiah 7, chapter 7. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Then I I, go from Acts 10, 43 to Isaiah 7, 14. I build up an argument. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if we actually pay attention to what the word Emmanuel means, the word Emmanuel means God with us. So Emmanuel is a title description of who the child will be that that the virgin will have. Means God with us. Then we go over to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. All right. So in Isaiah 9, 6, sorry, I'm just scrolling to the next one. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, meaning all power and authority, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, title descriptions of who he is. Okay. And his name, title description, shall be Wonderful Counselor. What does it say? The Mighty God. The 
everlasting father capital f and in the mighty god capital g this is god almighty sovereign lord king king of kings lord above all lords god above all gods almighty lord god come down the mighty god the everlasting father prince of peace then we go over to micah <clears throat> Old Testament, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. So the, the child-born son given, the Messiah, the Christ, will be born in Bethlehem. But the prophet Micah also gives us a title description of who the Christ Messiah is by giving him yet another title the one born in bethlehem ephrata out of these shall come forth unto me this be ruler in israel whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting the one whose ways are of old even of everlasting you know what that means in the hebrew old testament hebrew new testament greek in micah chapter micah chapter 5 verse 2 you know what that means the one whose ways are of old even of everlasting almighty lord god <laughs> Almighty Lord God. So Isaiah 7 14, Isaiah 9 6, Micah 5 2. The prophets spoke of. The prophets testified. So we go back to John 4. Then we go back to John 4. And then we face this again. Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. When she says, we know what the, what the Messiah, which is called Christ, is come, he'll tell us all things. Jesus says, I, the speaker, to the he. What is Jesus then saying? By claiming to be the Christ Messiah, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I, the speak unto thee, O Samaritan woman, I am the mighty God, I am the everlasting Father, I am the Prince of Peace, I am the one whose ways are of old, even of everlasting, the Almighty Lord God. I am the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God. That's what he's saying. And there are a billion more proofs of this you take a look at even the works of jesus that only god could do of raising the dead healing the sick forgiving sins accepting worship claiming the names of god there are so many other proofs of this but we go from here that just simply enough is learning how to establish the deity of Jesus Christ. Because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that. They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Seventh-day Adventists say Jesus is the Christ. But if you look in their doctrines, they say Jesus is Michael the Archangel. You take a look at Roman Catholics, they reduce his sovereignty, make him incompetent that he needs his mother, and Mary is the grand redemptress, the savior, and, and Jesus only helps her, and she, uh, she helps him, and all this stuff. That, and they reduce his sovereignty, and they strip him of his sovereign powers. You take a look at all the other cults, 
they, re they reject and reduce his divinity. But according to the Bible, Jesus is the Lord God, almighty, sovereign Lord God manifested in the flesh. That's who he is. Take a look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. And then you take a look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is the next one I go to when I'm street preaching. I go to John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. The Word is God. Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. The Word, which is God, became flesh. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word, which is God. <clears throat> so how does this work? How did the Word become God? No, sorry, how, sorry, not how the word become God. How the word which is God become flesh. I stumble over my own words. The word which is God, how did it become flesh? We go to Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Actually skipping ahead because this is going to be the next chapter we're going to be talking about in our next Bible study. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8. Now, I just kind of reference this passage when I'm street preaching. Uh, but uh, what I do is I describe in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, how the Lord fashioned a body for himself. The Lord fashioned a body for himself. The Spirit of God, which is called the Christ Spirit of God, as God is spirit, and those that worship him as worship him in spirit and in truth, no man has seen God any time and lived. So God needed, needed a veil covering, like he did with the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud on the tabernacle and temple, the burning bush, were veil coverings. Or veil coverings because you can't look upon God in his spiritual form yes has a veil in front of him so he fashioned a body for himself that's the body of Jesus the body of Jesus is the veil covering because why Acts chapter 20 verse 28 Acts chapter 20 verse 28 God purchased the church with his own blood but spirits can't bleed spirits can't die the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, but spirits can't bleed, spirits can't die. So how did God do this? He fashioned a body that could, his own body, that he then indwelt. As Jesus says, if you look, if you, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I, it's not I that speak my Father, it speaks through me. It's not mine own works, but my Father's which sent me. So we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, God fashioned a body for himself and he gave himself to the cross. Jesus is the Christ, the mighty God manifested in the flesh. Does this make sense? Please, any questions, any comments, questions, issues, insights, anything at all, please go ahead and ask away. Is this making sense? Now, There's the prevailing belief out there um, 
uh, what's it called? The can't remember term. Oh, the eternal sonship of Christ, where they believe that Jesus, as Jesus, always existed. No, 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 no. The Lord always existed. And the body, the body of Jesus, the body did not exist until the birth of Mary, until the birth through Mary. The spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of God, always was. He fashioned a body for himself for this purpose. For this purpose am I come, as Jesus says. But it's the spirit of Almighty God in the body. This is what the Bible talks about. And it's in that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the manifestation, the physical flesh and blood manifestation of Almighty God in the flesh. The Word was made flesh. The Word was made flesh. Okay? Jesus is Almighty God manifested in the flesh. Um, and uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross okay <clears throat> yes there's only one throne there's only one throne but then we see that beside the throne that Jesus ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the father the body that, that the Lord has prepared of the way of salvation, the way of life, the lamb of sacrifice, the atonement is always seated in the right hand of God. One body. Now it's always through his name, his work, his righteousness, his blood, of his death, of his resurrection, of his righteousness. The body of Jesus. Jesus is the advocate, the mediator, the name through which our salvation is wrought. It is eternally seated now on the right hand of the Father. But God is spirit, and Jesus is his body. His, his atonement uh, the, of the way of salvation that the Lord wrought. That's what scripture teaches there. So, being found in fashion as a man. Who was found in fashion as a man? The spirit of Almighty God. The spirit of the Lord. Spirit of God. Now, we take a look at Colossians. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 proving the deity of Jesus Christ Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 for in him back up it's talking about Jesus for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him in Jesus in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and upon him, upon him, uh, the government shall be upon his shoulder. All power, all authority. And he'll be called the mighty God, everlasting father. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you see, he is the Lord God. Walking this earth. He is. So when Thomas, after the resurrection, when Thomas... That when Jesus says, Thomas, behold my hands on my side, be not faithless but believing, and Thomas falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus blesses him. Thomas was right. Thomas is right. Because when you, when you see Jesus, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, that makes sense. You see? 
So establishing the deity of Jesus Christ by uh, simply by a few verses here, walk them through. We can then go and jump into all the other things about the works and the claims of Jesus and all the other stuff, but this is sufficient here. And showing this is what I do when I'm witnessing and evangelizing street preaching is I first establish uh, by uh, taking a look at John 4, John chapter 4, Samaritan woman at the well, verses 25, 26. I then I then go to Acts 10, 43, re- re- referencing how the prophets gave witness. They testified of it to Isaiah 7, 7 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2. Then I jump over to Philippians 2, 5 to 8, and Colossians 2, 9. Put those together, and this is the main argument. I then can add all other verses and passages and things to this, but this is the foundation there that proves the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, the word was made flesh, and, and then Philippians 2, 5 to 8, explaining this. This is how this works. So, scriptural memorization... This is what I'm getting to. Scriptural memorization is absolute key. You need to understand how to recall scripture. Because the vast majority of Christians, and I've talked about this, have have a severe problem. And that is, they are content with just being familiar with scripture. Or when you quote the verses, they're like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I'm familiar with that one. That's that's a curse, not a blessing that you're familiar with it. Because familiar with scripture does nothing, is useless, worthless, pointless, does nothing. It, it doesn't convict, it, it can't be used. You don't witness by familiarization, you witness by memorization. You're not content with just being familiar with it, you must know it. I see it, I get it, I understand it, I memorize it, I recall it, I quote it. You need to be memorizing scripture, not just familiar with it, memorize it. Now how do you memorize scripture? I'll get to the next one on uh, proving the doctrine of salvation by grace in a moment. How do you memorize scripture? Let's go over to John chapter 3, verse 16. Everyone knows John 3, 16, or should know it. The most commonly known, even unsaved people know this one. It's interesting. When, you, when you've been to a bunch of funerals, now, yeah, I know that's grim, but at funerals, everyone gets very religious. And, you know, quite often you see people at the graveside that quote John 3, 16, uh, that's one of the, one of the things everyone quotes. Everyone knows that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so we'll take that one just for a moment. John three sixteen. How can you memorize Scripture? Well, there's different techniques, tips of, of, of repetition and all that kind of thing. But the way I do it um, is I'll take a verse or a couple the the couple verses I want to memorize. And I'll write them down on a card or type them out in the notes folder on my phone and I'll always keep it there. And what I do is throughout the day and over the next few few days, however long it takes, this is what I do. I take the first few words. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. 
for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave, for God so loved the world that he gave, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I do it like that. If I mess up or if I stutter, I start over. And you just keep doing just a couple words at a time and just keep adding, 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 adding until you got the whole thing. You want to build the new branches and neurons in your brain. You want to build up that thing and just go word by word, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And you can memorize whole verses really quickly using that method. Um, it's a method I use. I just started using. I've never seen anyone else use this method. Um, I'm not going to claim it as my method, but this is what I use. It is uh, for it's just breaking it down word by word, just a little bit at a time, and you can memorize verses. It's just determination, willpower. Keeping yourself on track, not getting distracted from it, not being apathetic of it, but being determined, I'm going to learn and memorize these verses. And so you take all of these passages and start memorizing them. Do not be content with just familiarization. Okay? So, there's the first bit, understanding the deity of Jesus Christ and uh, the importance of this. And why? Because no other belief system in the entire world believes that Jesus is the almighty sovereign Lord God manifest in the flesh, like the Bible says. Uh, ours is the only one. And so, born-again Christianity needs to learn how to be specific on explaining Jesus. Because you're going to come across Catholics and Charismatics. Pentecostal charismatics are notorious for being hyper-universalists. And what I mean by that, where like Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, and all these other uh, demonic heretics, where they, they just generalize Jesus, that it doesn't matter how you see Jesus or what you think of Jesus, just as long as you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Catholics and Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists and all the cults and anyone else who says they believe in Jesus, they're a Christian too because they believe in Jesus. But what if your Jesus isn't God? Well, no, there's just all come on the name of the Lord. It's just, it's just Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. If you, if Jesus says in John chapter 8, here's another one. John chapter 8, this is why it's so important. John chapter 8, verse 24. John chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus himself said it. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and Jesus says, in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. Let's break down John 8, 24 just for a moment. This is why I'm always, always, always heavily, heavily emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ specifically. Because Jesus says, now if you look at, you'll notice I didn't say a word. There's, there's one word I did not quote in John 8, 24. The word he Unless you believe that I that uh, believe not that I am he, you should die in your sins. Because the word he is italicized. 
Now, the word he, the italicized word here, italicized words, is an interesting study. If you go back to when they were first translating the scriptures from the original Greek and Hebrew into English, that direct, immediate translation to English left for very broken English. Seriously, check that out. Uh, direct Greek Hebrew translation to English left for broken English. So what they would do is they'd study the context and then they would take additional English words and add them in to help with the flow of the sentence structure without changing the context. However, there were some points where they should not have done that. Like this verse here, the word he italicized words are added words because if we take a look at what it says in the original greek in the koine greek of john 8 24 i said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for if you believe not that i am hold up the word i am the words i am in the original koine greek is ego emi e-g-o E-I-M-I, ego emi, which means the almighty God. Jesus literally says in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I'm the almighty God, you will die in your sins. I believe that deserves this. mic drop because that therefore refutes all other belief systems all of them if you do not believe that i'm the i am and that is exodus what where god is talking to moses out of the burning bush tell them i am hath sent you that's the name of almighty god if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And the Pharisees would get mad and they say he's blaspheming because he's claiming the names of God. And in another part, he claimed to be God and they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus says, for what good work do you stone me? They said, not for good work do we stone thee, but because thou being a man makest thyself God. They knew this. They understood this. And Jesus saying, if you don't believe that I'm almighty God, I'm the God of your fathers, I'm the God of Israel. If you don't believe that I'm the I am, you will die in your sins. So therefore, therefore, by Jesus' own statement, the deity, the specific deity of Jesus Christ is a mandatory requirement for salvation. There you go. That's why you need to be specific. Now, this is different. From a person you're witnessing to and you're witnessing them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe in Jesus, but they don't yet know fully understand about that. There's grace enough and understanding that they will grow in this and they and they will see this, the Lord will teach them, the Lord will show them. This is different from a person who does not want to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They they believe that like the Mormons, Jesus is the created spirit brother of Lucifer. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses, he's Michael the Archangel. Or Seventh-day Adventists, he's he's the re, uh, reduced one, and he's also Michael sometimes. Uh, 
they mix that out. He's the son of God. They say he's the Christ, but some say he's Michael. But in their actual doctrines, they say he's Michael. Jesus is not Michael the Archangel. Jesus is Almighty God. And uh, the Catholics, they believe in the different Jesus. A reduced one needs his mommy. The Buddhists have their Jesus. We see the Muslims have their Jesus, which is a lesser prophet, less than Muhammad. So which Jesus are we talking about? So we got to learn to be able to explain this one, be able to show it. And there you go. I hope that makes sufficient sense on that. So in taking your notes, so we see the first pillar of witnessing and evangelism is being able to explain um, and prove the deity of Jesus Christ. How you go about that is up to you, but learn to use the scriptures, but just build off of that pillar, the deity of Jesus Christ. All right. Good. Okay, so let's move on to the second one. The second pillar of witnessing and evangelism, the second pillar of the born-again Christian faith, is there are two pillars, the deity of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone. How do we talk about this one? Well, salvation from what? Salvation from unbelief. We don't need to repent. It's just salvation from unbelief. You hear those people all the time. It drives me nuts. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me with those people. You don't need to repent of sins to be saved. Um, he went to the cross. Why? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of our what has separated us from God. What is what does the Bible say? It's about sins, sins. He shed his blood for sins. The wages of what is death? Sin. It's sin. Our sins have separated us from God. The blood atonement of sin. It's that the it's the sins, are, the wages of sin is death. So we, we see it's about sin, sin itself. Unbelief is sin. Rejecting the Lord is sin. Refusing to believe in the Lord is sin. Your sins. And we see as the law reveals sin, reveals the sin nature, reveals the sin we've committed. As you see in Galatians chapter 3, the law proves sin. So in, in first approaching it, we, we explain to the person how we are all sinners. Okay. Now, how can we prove that we're all sinners? There's different ways and approaches of this. But personally, what I like to use now, I do not advocate Ray Comfort of Living Waters, as he is now a heretic. He does not believe in eternal security. He does not believe in salvation by grace alone. He is a hardcore lordship salvationist that you have to work at maintaining, at keeping Jesus Lord of your life, or else you're not saved or you lost your salvation. He does, He's now uh, a form of works-based salvationist. But before he went that crazy wacko way, uh, he has a, he had a method that he used on using the law to show sin, which is an excellent method of using the Ten Commandments. Like, for example, you, you say, okay, um, you think you're a good person. Well, let's take the good person test. Well, have you ever told a lie? Thou shalt not lie. What do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. Okay. Now, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Even something small, even a pen, doesn't matter. Have you ever stolen anything, taken something that wasn't yours? What, what does that make you? 
thief. Thou shalt not steal. Have you have you ever? Now Jesus says, if you if you look upon a woman to lust after her, if you committed adultery with her already in your heart, thou shalt not commit adultery. But it it doesn't. It's not just to look at women, but even women looking at men, as you see, lusting after an individual even in your heart. Have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? What does that make you? A lying, thieving, adulterer. Okay. Have you ever used the name of God? in blasphemy use the name of god as a custard even omgs is blasphemy that's that's a flippant irreverent misuse of the mention of the name of god for for cheap exp expletive have you ever used the name of god and expletives or, or use the name of god cheaply like that that's blasphemy so lying thieving adulterous blasphemer that's just four of the ten commandments if god if god was to judge you by the standard of the ten commandments would you be innocent or guilty guilty of what sin heaven or hell hell by that standard okay now we see is Jesus Christ came uh, to save us from the condemnation of our sin. Save us from the condemnation of our sin. Because God so loved the world. And I start with John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It does not say God loved the world. It says God so loved the world. The so love of God is what I build off of when I'm, when I'm witnessing evangelism. John 3 16 for God so loved the world the soul love of God is the self-sacrificing love of God of greater love hath no man than this and a man who laid down his life for his friends and that's what God did self-sacrificing love Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 he he fashioned a body for himself so that he could shed his blood and die for us because as as it says without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins and the wages of sin is death so we take a look at John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave himself he gave himself it's his gift his work Ephesians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 Ephesians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 No what am I talking about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 I'm tired and the coffee has not yet kicked in <clears throat> I didn't sleep well last night. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited. Remember, we talked about this. Unmerited. What does that mean? Can someone tell me in the comments, what does unmerited mean? What does that mean? unmerited you got any ideas so we take it for by grace unmerited uh, uh, we have here a few people didn't earn it uh, undeserved not deserved that's right not deserved so the unmerited favor of God meaning I didn't earn it I don't deserve it it's not a reward but he gave it to me anyways because he so loved me so by grace unmerited favor of god are ye saved through works no no wait for by grace are you saved through baptism no no 
For by grace are you saved through Mary. Nope. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. 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 What? Well, what is faith? Well, actually, the Bible even tells us in, in Hebrews, I believe it is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You're all right. Y'all got it. Undeserved, not deserved, not worked for, not deserved. You're 100% right. For by grace is saved through faith. Faith is the, the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. What's another way of saying that? Faith is believing trust. Hope of Christ, which is believing trust. So we could actually reword verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by unmerited favor are ye saved through believing trust. Look what it says next. And that not of yourselves. And that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. Meaning literally nothing of you. A complete, complete absence of self and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not reward so by unmerited favor are you saved through believing trust with nothing of yourselves because it's a gift of god verse 9 not of works and he he goes over this again he emphasizes this again in verse 9 not of works in case you didn't get it not of works not anything you could possibly do not of works lest any man should boast because it's about boasting of christ not of me it's of christ not me it's his righteousness not mine his works not mine it's his cross not mine i bring nothing to the table of my salvation other than the sin that made it necessary famous quote by preacher Jonathan Edwards for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works as any man should boast and they and people say well 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 what about the rosary what about water baptism what about all the good works what about just James says faith that works is dead <laughs> sure he says that but he's not talking about salvation Let's go to Titus chapter 3 because Titus explains this as Paul's writing to Titus. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness. Now what is, can someone tell me in the comments, can you simplify, just what's a simple explanation, what does it mean, what are works of righteousness can you give me one word or two words whatever then another way of explaining what are works of righteousness what does that mean so we see in ephesians 2 8 and 9 not of works not of yourselves because it's a gift of god it's not a reward it's unmerited, unmerited favor of God that is given by believing trust. 
but okay that says works and of yourselves but what about righteous works now righteous works would be religiosity religiosity the religious works church works works of saints the saints actions not by righteous works which we do now we see not by works of righteousness the bible says that this is what god says the spirit of almighty god inspiring the the apostle paul telling him what to write god says it's not by works it's not of yourselves and it's not by righteous works now what would fall under righteous works what would fall under religiosity you're right calvin fruit the christian's fruit james 2 but james 2 says that with the, that that, that uh, faith that works is dead yeah okay let's just look at that one just for a quick moment rabbit trail what is james talking about okay back up back up back up into chapter one james is speaking to who context who is the audience christians james is talking to christians who are already saved now take the whole book in context what is he talking about christian behavior for the purpose of what promotion of the faith he's not talking about works to maintain to keep your salvation or to earn your salvation or to atone for your salvation he's talking to christians already saved and he's talking about charity and christian behavior for the purpose of promotion of the faith not salvation because we see here it's not by righteous works it's not by works it's not it's not of yourselves and paul's talking about salvation so either we got we got some problems here or well let's take a look paul is talking about salvation ephesians 2 8 9 titus 3 5 and whatnot not but not of works not of not by righteous works not of yourself james says faith that works is dead okay um are there more than one way of salvation that's bad english is there more than one way of salvation are there two ways of salvation no 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 there isn't okay is there a salvation for the gentiles and a salvation system for the jews no no because the bible says that in christ is neither jew nor gentile neither bond nor free neither male nor female all are one in christ so no there's only one way one truth one life not two there's one narrow road not two it's one lord one spirit one cross one way of salvation not two so no 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 it's 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 not two ways of salvation it's not a salvation for general salvation for jews because some people actually believe that fyi but if you want to refute that just take them to galatians galatians chapter 3 verses 28 and 29 there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. Galatians 3. So yeah. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, 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 
race you are, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what language you are, doesn't matter where you're located, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. All are one in Christ. So there's only one way of salvation. So, okay, so what, what is James talking about then? Okay, so we take a look at context. Paul is talking about salvation. It's not by works, not by righteous works, not of yourselves. So James then is not talking about salvation. He's talking about Christian behavior and charity and all, all whatnot. You say you have faith, but well, how can you prove you're a Christian? How can you prove you're a Christian to someone? By your actions. Because 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be always ready to give an answer to them who come and ask you of the hope within you. What is causing them to come and ask you about the hope within you? Your behavior. So your actions are a form of witnessing and evangelism, of Christ-like behavior. All right, that's what James is talking about. Let's go back to Titus 3.5. So not by works of righteousness. Okay, hold up. What about water baptism? Okay, let's, let's, let's look at this just for a moment. Okay, for by grace, unmerited favor, are you saved by believing trust and not of yourselves. Nothing of you. It's a gift. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Titus 3, 5. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost. Okay, hold up a minute. But it says by the washing of regeneration. John chapter 1. We see John the Baptist is at the river Jordan. He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So you see, water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit of God. Uh, where the Spirit of God cleanses you. The Spirit of God washes you by His righteousness, by the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ, the purging fire of the Spirit of God. So, not by works of righteousness, because water baptism, it technically would be a righteous work, because it's an action that you yourself have to do, that until I do X, I can't receive Y. I have to physically go into the water and do the action. That would be a righteous work that I do, not by works of righteousness. So therefore, water baptism is not a requirement for salvation. It falls under righteous works. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but we, we do seek out water baptism after we've believed, because it's symbolic, symbolizing outwardly what has happened inwardly. But it does not affect your salvation, it's not salvationary. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So, um, there go all the cults again. That's Roman Catholicism. That's Seventh-day Adventism. That is Lutheran, which actually Lutheranism is baptismal regeneration gospel. They believe your salvation is wrought by the waters of baptism, that your sin is not forgiven until you get dunked in water. So technically, Lutheranism, it would fall under that. Anglicanism, we see Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, and every single other belief system in the entire world because they are all works-based systems of salvation. Only born-again Christianity is by grace alone. Born-again Christianity is the only belief system in the entire world that's by grace alone. 
Think about that one for a moment. Can you name for me <clears throat> any other belief system in the entire world? You think I'm wrong? Think about it. Name for me just one. Just one. One other belief system in the entire world that's by grace. Name for me one. Just one. Other than born-again Christianity. You won't find it. Buddhism, self-effort, you 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 work yourself into nirvana. Hinduism, righteousness, self-righteousness. Mormon, self-righteousness and wearing your magic linen underwear to become your own god of your own planet. Jehovah's Witness, righteous works to, to earn your spot in the 144,000. Catholicism, self-atonement for sins and purgatory, self, uh, self-righteousness to earn your salvation by works. Seventh-day Adventism, uh, investigative judgment doctrine of Ellen White. Righteous works, law-keeping to earn your earn your place in heaven when you're investigated at the throne to see if you're worthy enough to enter heaven. Anglicanism, baptismal regeneration, righteous works to earn your salvation. Not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy ghost it's the spirit of god the holy ghost spirit of christ that washes us clean that cleanses us that renews us that regenerates us that redeems us we do nothing titus 3 5. then we also take a look at the the, the next one galatians galatians chapter 2 verse 16. <clears throat> Galatians 2.16. So you're seeing that the, in all of this, there's no coexistence of faiths. There's no coexistence of faiths. Because there is not one single other belief system in the entire world that agrees with the gospel of Jesus Christ according to scripture. Christianity does not uh, go hand in hand with Islam or Catholicism or Mormonism or, or Seventh-day Adventism or any other system, any other ism. Nothing, uh, nothing in the entire world agrees with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It stands alone. There's no coexistence of faiths. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, look what it says. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law so it's not by works not of yourselves not by righteous works not by law keeping knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of jesus christ even we have believed in jesus christ that we might be justified by the faith believing trust of Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified we are not justified by law keeping works doing righteous works keeping we're only justified by believing trust in Jesus Christ so Ephesians 2 8 and 9 Titus 3 5 Galatians 2 16 because well, it's not by law keeping or works or any of this, because we see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. 
For if there had been a law given which could have given life, that you could be saved by, by keeping the law, if it was possible, verily righteousness should have been by the law. For if there had been a law given which could, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But as the scripture hath concluded, all under sin, and the promises, and the, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ may be given to them that believe. But it's not. But rather it's by faith, by belief. Not by law keeping. Take a look at 1 John First John chapter 5 verse 13 1 John 5 13 these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God how can you know you're born again saved because you believed then we go to Romans chapter 10 Romans chapter 10 starting at verse 9 Romans 10 9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth so a confession is made known you state it that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved so the confession of the mouth of the belief of the heart so the, it's from the heart. It's belief of the heart. You confess with your mouth the belief of your heart, you're saved. For with the heart, verse 10, for with the heart men believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There you go. There you go. And and one more. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 verses 30 to 31. Acts chapter 16 verses 30 to 31. So we see Paul and Silas. I think I said Paul and Barnabas in the prison. I always mix up Barnabas and Silas. I don't know why I always do that. But it's Paul and Silas. We're in the dungeon. They're in the prison and the stocks and then the earthquake. And the, open, the Lord opened the doors and broke the stocks and freed them. And the jailer runs in and he says, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And then the jailer brought them out. In Acts 16, verse 30. And he brought them out and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Cuts right to the heart, right to the point, blows away all the fluff and feathers, gets right down to the mechanics of it, that right at the heart of the matter, what must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? How can I receive the salvation of Jesus Christ? What must I do to be saved? So this man has heard Paul before, he's heard the gospel, he knows all this, and now he wants to be saved, he's under conviction. What does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's nothing about works, nothing about righteous works, nothing about law keeping, nothing about water baptism, nothing about going to church, nothing about charity, about the good behaviors, the actions, the deeds, the law keeping, none of it. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We go to Mark 1.15 because Paul here is quoting Jesus. And it's very simply, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the first sermon of Jesus, Mark 1.15. And Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So the two pillars of the born-again Christian faith, the two pillars of witnessing and evangelism, the two pillars is the deity of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith by belief alone. Grace alone salvation. Deity of Jesus Christ and grace alone salvation. Learn these two things. Uh, there I gave you some verses. Memorize those and build off from that. If you want to know more, please make sure you ask. And make sure you uh, don't... Uh, hesitate to ask uh, we also have a playlist here in our youtube channel where i actually it's called witnessing and evangelism where i go into great detail on different styles and types of witnessing and evangelism or break it down different explanations whatnot if you want to know more please check that out okay uh, we do have a question here okay william says what about justification sanctification glorification <clears throat> okay now very simply stated and don't worry, Force, and the others, I'll be getting back to your, your questions in a moment. Justification is easily understood by rephrasing it. Justification, meaning uh, uh, justified by Christ, which means in another way, a.k.a. just as if I've never sinned. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. What, who, justifies me before the lord the work of jesus christ he is my justification i don't seek out my own justification by works or deeds or whatever he is my justification his the work of the cross his death uh, death burial resurrection his shed blood his death his work his atonement is my justification the cross is my justification that's what justifies me now, what about sanctification? That which sanctifies me before the Lord. Is that my deeds? Well, no. We actually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Jesus Christ is our wisdom righteousness and sanctification and redemption he is my sanctification he is that which sanctifies me because it's his righteousness of his work of his deeds because i have none for for in us there is no good we're corrupted we have no good we can do no good in us is no good thing all are falling away all are become corrupt there's none that doeth good no not one all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags that's why he imputes upon us his righteousness it's his spirit his work his justification his sanctification his redemption it's all of him none of me all of him none of me so he is my justification he justifies me by uh, because I have believed 
on him as my Lord and Savior. So therefore, he justifies me before the Lord by his righteousness. And because of that, he is my sanctification because he is my righteousness. And thusly, it's all about his glorification because he is my righteousness. So there you go. Now, uh, we have a question here on Acts 16.31. who says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thine house. Uh, it's an interesting bit when we do a study on this because who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the jailer who is the head of his house. He's the husband, the father of, of, of his house. It's an interesting study when you take a look at the statistics of what happens when a husband, a father gets saved versus when the, the wife, the mother gets saved versus when the children get saved of the level of what's the word impact, I guess, uh, that they would have on the rest of the house. If the child gets saved, they won't have as much of an influence. There's the word influence on the rest of the family with the mother somewhat, but with the dad, the husband, get saved the level of influence upon that that the, uh, we see the whole the whole family actually believe because he believed uh, we see of a great blessing as you see in corinthians talks about how how the the husband uh, can, uh, sanctifies the wife the wife can sanctify her husband uh, those that believe versus the, un, un, uh, the unbelievers as the blessing of the lord on the rest of the family when the head of the house even believes there's a level, level of great influence and impression that is made and we do see it happen is that he then went and told the rest of his family about this and they all believed too um uh, so yeah there's a great there's a great blessing there uh, some people take that to mean that if you get saved that means your whole family will get saved not necessarily but rather you look at the context of who's paul's talking to there that by this by the spirit of the lord and about uh the family order and all this it's it's a big study on that um but it doesn't necessarily always mean that if you get saved, your whole family will. I wish that were true. Um, but then, uh, again, we do have to take a look at who it's talking to and addressing specifically in context. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, in talking about witnessing and evangelism, there's some, thing, some things I want to share with you. A little bit of show and tell here. Um, some things that I use. Um, now... Depending on where I'm going, what I'm doing, I have my personal study Bible, right? It has all my notes and stuff. This is my special Bible. No one touches this Bible. This is my Bible, <laughs> my, my study Bible, uh, my preaching Bible. It has all my notes, all my stuff in it. It stays here. Or if I go to, I take it to church, I have my case, I put it in, I take it to church. This is, this is the Bible I use for that. But depending on where I'm going, uh, what, what I'm doing, I sometimes take other Bibles with me. Uh, for witnessing evangelism, you can get tiny little Bibles. See, this is my study one, and this is my other one. It's a tiny little one, pocket Bible. And uh, I use that for street preaching, witnessing, evangelizing. This is my, my little one for that. You can get that. Um, or if you want, if you're so inclined, I invested in a special all-weather Bible. This one is a waterproof, weatherproof Bible. Uh, the 
advertisement for it was quite interesting. It shows a guy, he's standing on the side of a lake and he, he's talking about it, about what it's made of. The pages are plastic. The pages are actually plastic. And you can't wreck it. He takes the Bible and drops it into the lake. It floats. He picked it up, shook it off, showed perfectly fine. There you go. It's an all-weather Bible. Um, you use it in the rain, in the snow, sleet, all weather. You don't have to worry about it. And when I do street preaching, this is the Bible I use. So if people throw stuff at me or whatever, it can't get wrecked. It can't get wrecked. So that's why I like it. This is my street preaching Bible, my Bible I use when I'm going to do outside stuff. Um, or if I'm going to be traveling somewhere and there's potential uh, weather issues, I take this one with me. So different kinds of Bibles you can get for uh, different kinds of approaches, different styles. Um, also, you you can make or buy evangelism shirts. Now, these are shirts that I wear. And when I'm doing all kinds of stuff, street preaching or I go outside, sometimes I'll even wear these shirts. So I'm going outside to do my workouts. I do strongman weightlifting. I all my implements, like I said, when I'm out on the, the road doing all kinds of stuff, sometimes I wear these shirts and I'm telling you, it really grabs people's attention. I like that the bright, uh, it's the uh, construction site, orange, yellow, neon kind of color really pops in the light. Uh, on the front, it says Jesus Christ is God. And on the back, repent and believe the gospel and so you don't really need to say anything remember when i talked about the different styles there's the silent evangelism silent evangelism is where you don't have to say anything because your hat your shirt your banners whatever you have your signs i have signs uh say enough i don't have to really say anything so there's silent evangelism which is uh quite effective uh, on these signs I have here in the in the in the photo, those are mine. On the other side of them, I have two more uh, of uh, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, and it's First John five twenty, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. I have those verses on the other side of the the signs, uh, just like that in black, white, and the bright yellow to really pop, stand out, grab people's attention. A little bit of highlight of red really stands out those are the signs that i use in my evangelism so you, shirts signs um then for stuff to hand out now generally this is what i use these tracks i talk about all the time again if you want you can download these tracks uh from our website we have them for free no catch 100 free uh you just download the pdf and you just print them off yourself print them off yourself and it comes with both of these and it explains the gospel how to be saved and the and the other one explains the deity of jesus christ and these are are written i wrote these uh, for two purposes to hand out and also as a personal instruction manual to show you how to witness what verses you should memorize learn if you want to explain um, you don't have to if you don't want to, but this is a very simple, easy way of explaining the gospel that as it is by these tracks. So it's an instruction manual for evangelism and they're meant for handing out. So these tracks you can hand out and I have done uh, sometimes at uh, 
uh, dollar stores. At some dollar stores, um, you can buy tiny little New Testaments. Tiny little New Testaments. And just for comparison, I'll show you my main Bible that I use versus the tiny little New Testament. And uh, what I do is I get these and in on the inside leaf, I'll, ge I'll generally write, I'll just pen in some verses, uh, like references, you look, look up, you know, to walk them through the Bible, like Romans 10, 9 to 10, John 3, 16, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that kind of thing. And I'll hand these out. I'll hand these out. Um, people are more inclined to actually hold on to a Bible, a little Bible, versus if you hand them a track, sometimes they'll throw the track away, but they don't throw these away. They don't throw these away. But these are more more expensive. And they could be for anywhere from a dollar to two dollars or whatever for one of these. Or just for, for to buy tracks, for example, they're pretty cheap. Or you get them off our website for free. So it's up to you if you want to invest in that kind of approach. Uh, some people do throw these away, so just keep that in mind. So it's all up to you. Uh, about cost efficiency and everything too. Now there's different kinds of tracks, different types, again, like the ones we have, or you can do even simple, you can make simple card tracks. It just has John 3.16 on it. And on the back, you can write a message or whatever and just lay, lay these around. The other ones as well, or this is what I do as I'll make a packet. You get a large zippy bag that's why I call them Ziploc bags. I call them zippy bags. You get a zippy bag. And in here, I have a bunch of tracks. Like I showed you before, a bunch of different kinds, different types that explain the gospel, different ways, different approaches to have, have ours in here as well. And um, I'm all out of these, unfortunately. This is like one of my last ones. Um, I, I need to find somewhere I can get some more John and Romans. I don't know where... I can get some that are good. You get John and Romans, or you can even just get one of these little Bibles. Throw it in the bag with all the other tracks, and you can leave these around. Uh, sometimes I'll put these on cars in the windshield, or uh, hand them to people, leave them on parked benches, you leave them around because you don't have to worry about because the bag will protect them from the weather. And especially when we're getting into winter, I don't have to worry about all this stuff getting wet and getting covered in slush and snow and mud or whatever. Or sometimes people take the packet and just throw it on the ground. You don't have to worry about them getting wrecked because the bag will protect it. So there's some ideas for you. If you're if you're a family, you got kids, ideas. One thing I like to mention is you could use the sidewalk chalk evangelism. Your kids will enjoy this one is you get a bunch of Bible verses ready and know which ones and you get a bunch of sidewalk chalk, you go outside and in the park, on the sidewalk, on the road, be careful, uh, you can write Bible verses. It's not vandalism, it's sidewalk chalk, washes off, you don't have to worry about it. Down the sidewalk on each section you can write a different verse and, uh, and, then, and if that washes away or gets wrecked, well, write some new ones. So different ways you could approach in evangelism. So yeah, so there's some ideas for you. Some things I just want to get across there. If you have any comments, questions, any ideas, please 
feel free to ask away be glad to hear from you uh what about shirts william says um again you it doesn't matter the point is is that christ is preached that that jesus christ is published publicized promoted and whatever way you can do that do it um some are better than others some tracks are better than others um i will oh, just remind me i would like to share with you one point is chick tracks i'm not a fan of not a fan of i'm not a fan of chick tracks i'll tell you why um <clears throat> they're goofy and no one takes them seriously when I, uh, on my previous job, when I, I talked about how I used to work at a large resort, I was on the security, I was in the security department as a security guard for there. And every once in a while, it happened a couple times over the years that I was there. I was there for several years and it happened a few times is some people would come along and they would leave tracks around. And more often than not, it was chick tracks. You know, the, what is your life? And then there are some other ones. Um, staff would gather them up and they would have an absolute heyday of laughter and mocking and scoffing and no one took them seriously they thought they was the dumbest stupidest things no one took them seriously no one liked them um and because they're they're done as a comic book style and it's just there, there used to be a time when people did take them seriously where they would be effective but not anymore especially the younger generation it's just it, they're nothing but joke i personally do not recommend chick tracks i do not advocate for them that they are not effective um i used to try to use them it's just it's i i don't uh, it's just don't use chick tracks and now they were effective back in their time but not anymore um, the best is this is the very simple straightforward approach just use scripture scripture alone is like this you don't need to to do comic book style things to to grab their attention just this that's the word of god is what can can convicts the hearer. the word of god is what changes the heart and the mind not comic book styles so uh but shirts in the same thing some shirts are better than others um what are you trying to promote like I have a shirt that I use uh, for my workout sometimes, or if I just want to wear around town kind of thing. And uh, it says uh, about how it shows shows Jesus uh, kind of on the ground, the cross on his back, and about uh, Jesus bearing the the sin of the world. Now some people can look at that, and it's not quite as clear as obvious as some other styles. You know, like like you or a shirt that says Jesus or blessed or a shirt that has a cross on it you want it to be clear uh but uh, if you're wanting to use it for evangelism it needs to be clear concise to the point it needs to get across that even at a glance the person understands what you're getting across but if you're just wanting to wear a shirt just for wearing a shirt then go right ahead it's perfectly fine as long as it's not irreverent um or mocking or that kind of thing it's just yeah, it's just if you want to wear your Bible verses or styles or whatever or the cross, go ahead, go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with Christian apparel. Um, 
Some of them are just goofy, like you see, you know, the, the hats say, hashtag blessed. You mean hashtag, uh, I cannot roll my eyes hard enough? But yeah. Okay, so there we go. Uh, any other comments, questions, issues, insights regarding the whole evangelism thing? Anything? Please go ahead, ask away. Uh, but uh, uh, William says, I'd like to make a Bible comic book. Actually, someone's already beaten you to that. Um, <clears throat> there are many different kinds. And um, growing up, I used to have, actually, I still have, but I can't really use it anymore because it's so falling apart. My parents got it for me when I was a little kid called the Picture Bible. But we're just talking about action bibles and i have one here i want to promote uh for families with kids now it can be difficult uh to try to read the bible to kids when you sit them down you take your bible at little kids their minds it's hard to get their attention uh, they're very visual they, they need to be stimulated it's hard sometimes to get their attention but uh that's where it's this is completely up to you uh if you appreciate this kind of thing but this one the action bible it's a hardcover uh you get the christianbook.com you can buy it on amazon everywhere this is fantastic uh bright colors uh, animations all this stuff all throughout it is great absolutely great uh in the way it's promoted and uh, for little kids, I'm telling you, it grabs their attention so well. Uh, it's a great a tool to use in, in uh, walking them through the, the biblical stories, all this stuff, and the familiarization of scripture. Excellent idea for if you've got little kids, or you got a nursery, or you're doing the uh, 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 Sunday school for kids kind of thing, uh, junior church. This is a, a great idea. Check that out. The Action Bible. okay um so i think that pretty much wraps that up. let's back up here is any other comments um uh kirk says yeah sad to hear about ray comfort i saw he was basically endorsing a wizard too in one of his latest videos maybe not endorsing him but in a way he was making light of his relationship to a wizard yeah <clears throat> he's really fallen off the the wagon He's got a lot of problems now. I no longer, Christian Coffee Time does not endorse Ray Comfort and the Living Waters Ministries uh, because of the way they've gone. Uh, they are Lordship Salvationists, works-based Salvationists too. Uh, need to work at repentance, work at keeping Jesus Lord of your life or you're not saved. It's That's completely uh, unbiblical. So we don't endorse anything uh, by them anymore. Okay, uh, going down through here. Deb says, I won't lie, I still struggle accepting that. I've been trying to get sober and I feel like I betray God daily. I'm trying to clean up my lifestyle a bit, but there's sins I struggle with. Which we all have. Uh, no one is without sin. Nobody becomes sinless. You cannot attain sinlessness. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't fight sin. But, uh, but rather, it's understanding that in the grace of God, that there's grace enough that he holds me. When did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? 
When did the prodigal son stop being the son of his father? He didn't. He didn't. But rather we see uh, the great love of the father, a longing that his son would return, but the son coming under conviction, repenting of what he'd done and coming back, and the father ran and embraced him. The prodigal son never stopped being the son of his father. We never lose our salvation. Our salvation cannot be lost, taken away, or recanted. Once saved, always saved is an absolute uh, true doctrine of scripture because salvation is not by works. But rather, once we are saved, the Spirit of God brings us under conviction. It teaches us, instructs us, helps us to understand, and shows us when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Lord's mercy and grace is always upon us. We look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I would strongly recommend, uh, Dev, that you go and read Romans 7 slowly, carefully. You see Paul talking about his own struggles with sin, of his own, of his own flesh and what the flesh does to him. I, I cannot do the things I would. My flesh wars against my spirit. And, and with, the, with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. No wretched man that I am, we see his, his struggles. But he has learned the grace of God, learned that when it does happen, when the righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Is that we see, we just deal with it get over it and say lord please forgive me help me show me help me to gain victory and he does he will never cast you away he will never disown you you're held in the hand of the father no man can pluck you out that means you can't pluck yourself out either salvation is assured it is everlasting it is by his righteousness not mine and that's why because we are sinners saved by grace so i hope that helps uh force says did god tell anyone in the bible to i guess you mean tithe 10 percent? if so where because people believe they get blessed if they pay tithe um all right when you dive into the word of god you'll see that um the 10% thing was in the Old Testament during the temple tabernacle period um, about uh, people to give a 10% to the temple to tabernacle for, for help with the uh, provision for the priests and the upkeep of the place and everything else. Um, the 10% was Old Testament and is not repeated in the New Testament, but rather uh, what is mentioned is no, no, not a percentage or amount kind of thing, but rather it's of the heart as a cheerful giver, giving it unto the Lord uh, to, because you want to help. You want to uh, give to support the church, support the ministry, the upkeeps, all this stuff. To, you want to be a part and take part in this. But it's just whatever happens that the Lord puts on your heart. So give and you give cheerfully, not even letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing kind of thing. Look at the woman giving the two mites. Some people, they give more than what they have. More, uh, all that. It's, it's all of the heart. So but what people are doing is they're taking the Old Testament 10% law and they're forcing it upon the New Testament period, which is 
incorrect. Now, we use, as Christians, we use the 10% thing as like a rule of thumb kind of thing. Like, if you don't know, well, it's 10% then. That we use it as just a rule of thumb, but it's not law, it's not mandatory, you don't have to, it's whatever the Lord puts on your heart, so so give. Um, now, the point of tithing, if I give money, will the Lord bless me? Well, the prosperity gospel puts it that that, that that the the more I give, the more bless the more the Lord blesses me, and I am because the Lord wants me to be, wants me to be healthy, wealthy, rich, and powerful. God wants me to have my best life now, and then the more money I give, the more the Lord will make me that. So it's all for selfish reasons. It's all for self empowerment. And it's all lies. The whole prosperity gospel thing is based on lies and heresies and blasphemies. It's a bunch of nonsense. But if I'm giving, though, because it has nothing to do with me, but because I just want to help the church, well, does the Lord bless that which we give him out of a pure heart fervently, regardless of what it is? What if it's not money? What if it's labor what if i go and i labor in the church will the lord bless me because i just want to serve the church i want to help the ministry of god will the lord bless me? yeah he the lord honors those who honor him so it has nothing to do with me or about what i'm getting in return it has no aspect to it, it has nothing to do with me just because i want to help i want to be a part and the lord blesses those who honor him and so you're not giving so that you get in return. You're giving because you just want to help. And the Lord will bless an honest and sincere heart. So don't look at the money. Look at the heart, the attitude of where it's coming from. Okay. Um, Let's go down here. Okay, I think that pretty much wraps up the comments section, I think. If I missed anything, please let me know. Um, I'll actually, uh, Calvin Filter here, uh, regarding the whole Lutheran thing, I just want to touch on that again. <clears throat> Martin Luther himself, back in the 1500s. Now, there's much that is massively misunderstood about Martin Luther. So A lot of people condemn him and everything because of what he said. Okay, you have to pay attention to Martin Luther in the sequence sequences of his age and his growth and all this because martin luther when he got saved he got born again saved truly born again saved he used to be an augustinian monk of the roman catholic church all right he was of a special high order of the roman catholic church of a specialty um, uh, monk system of the augustinian order he got saved out of that and he had a lot of unlearning to do. In his first years, saved, he was so on fire and he was writing a lot and speaking a lot. And he had a lot of issues, a lot of doctrinal error in his first first while. But he started growing out of it. Uh, in his later years, he was really on the ball. His doctrines are sound. He recanted, refuted a lot of the stuff he, he had said previously in his younger years. He was, uh, and uh, in his younger years, he was a baptismal regenerationist. But then he learned that's a lie. And he recanted that, and he, and he fully understood 
the gospel of salvation by grace through faith by belief alone not a baptism or works or anything and he understood that and he started preaching that promoting that um you'll notice like for example the 95 theses have you ever actually read them have you ever actually read the 95 theses i have they're terrible there's there, some of them are okay are, are, are okay but a lot of them are absolutely terrible promoting roman catholic doctrine roman catholic theology that the roman catholic church is the true church and all kinds of other nonsense and garbage in the 95 theses you can't promote the 95 theses you shouldn't if you're a born again christian you shouldn't but that was in his younger years in his later years, he he actually refuted and and uh, and uh, opposed a lot of the things that were in the ninety five theses. But so you have to take a look at which which period of his life are you talking about when you're referring to Martin Luther. So when I refer to him, I'm referring to him in his later years when he was biblically correct, and he was not a baptismal regenerationist. I say that because the Lutheran denomination used to be correct but uh years ago they changed and they actually became baptismal regenerationists and idolaters they are idolaters they have taken the roman catholic ten commandments where the Roman Catholic Ten Commandments, where what they've done is they've taken the commandment, thou shalt not have unto thee any graven images, they take that one out. And they take the last one on, on coveting and they split it into two, so that there's still ten. Because the Lutherans have adopted uh, images, statues, idols, and all this stuff with it, as well as baptismal regeneration, they are corrupt and they are no longer a Christian sect. That Lutheranism today preaches a false gospel. I just want to clarify that. So, so if they come back, you wow, Martin Luther did not. I, you got to look at which era are you talking about? Because in his later years, he did not accept that. He refuted it, rebuked it, wrote against it, preached against the kind of stuff that Lutheranism holds to today. So, I just want to point that out. Okay. Um, is there anything else here I want to touch on? Um, all right, so I think that pretty much wraps that up. So with that, uh, is there anything else I want to, yes. Okay. One last thing before we wrap it up for today, we've been going for quite a while here. Um, I have clarification to make. Uh, because some people were upset at my stance with the the TV series The Chosen. I used to be a fan of it. Well, I was a fan of the first season for certain reasons. Uh, and you'll note uh, that uh, in the early years when it first came out, I would not condemn it like a lot of other people were because a lot of their condemnation was just not based on actual 
biblical evidential doctrine. Um, because you take a look at what they were promoting in the first season. They were promoting the deity of Jesus Christ biblically. They were promoting salvation by grace biblically. And they were not corrupting the gospel itself. That in the first season, there was no promotion of Mormonism. There was no promotion of Roman Catholicism. People were just arguing because of the artistic license of the of certain of the behaviors and the places they went and things they said and did in the show. Well, it's, it's a show. It's called artistic license. It's not meant to be completely, perfectly, flawlessly, bi biblically accurate. It, it's a show. So, of course, there's going to be some artistic license, but as long as it doesn't directly contradict the word of God. Some people just didn't like the way that the guy playing Jesus behaved in certain ways. Well, you have no idea how he actually behaved. Uh, 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 was he more jokey? Was he laughing more? Or was he silent more? What was his mannerisms? The Bible doesn't actually describe certain characteristics of the actual person of Jesus. You know, what, what, what kind that did he smile a lot? It doesn't say, but we can imply. And that's all the show is doing. So people would argue that. but And so I, I was holding to that. Just let's wait and see about wisdom is justified over children. That if there are issues, we'll, we'll see it. And season two came along and we saw there they started to slowly corrupt themselves. We see in the one episode where they actually spread an absolute bold-faced heretical lie in the one episode about the pool of Bethesda. Um, that... Uh, in the original manuscripts of the actual scriptures it is uh, it was real and it was of god it was not a pagan temple like a lot of the so-called scholars and other bible versions try to promote it as but it is it is actually of god and an angel of god would come down and stir the waters and the lord would heal whoever jumped in first it was real the bible says it and it's not not a, not a lie not a made-up thing it wasn't some temple thing but the, sh the Chosen tried to promote it as a, that it was a pagan temple. And I did a video calling that out and, and showing how that was wrong. But overall, they still had yet not corrupted the gospel message itself. And we start seeing uh, through season two. And uh, still watching it. And I was still a fan of it somewhat. I still liked the way that they came across certain things. They did a really good job at certain things. But then it started getting a little weird at the end of season two. With just the way they're behaving with John the Baptist and whatnot. There's just some interaction. I just it was just off. And I started to see, okay, maybe we do have some problems in coming. And then came season three. All right. The Chosen has finally picked a side. And like I said, wait, 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 and we'll see. Wait, and we'll see. Wisdom is justified over children. Do not be hesitant. Uh, do, do not be rash in judgment. Do not be fast in judgment, but rather be hesitant. Take your time. Judge righteously. Judge righteously. Because the Chosen was doing a lot of work and that a lot of people were actually getting born again saved from the Chosen. And it was actually encouraging a lot of uh, distressed, depressed Christians are getting encouraged and helped and benefited a lot in the first and second season. But then we see an issue where the devil finally got his claws on the series. In, in season three, we see 
they're actually quoting from the Book of Mormon and Roman Catholicism. And the, the actual producers and the people that make The Chosen actually pushing the Roman Catholic Church at the audience and, and urging people to buy rosaries, to download Roman Catholic prayer apps, to follow along with rosaries, because apparently the guy playing Jesus is a Roman devout Roman Catholic and, uh, and is really pushing that. And as well as that where they're working, a lot of the, the, the workers, the staff are Mormon, um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is Mormon. And so they are now taking on things to, uh, to promote all the people there and calling the Mormons uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, calling the Catholics our brothers and sisters in Christ. So now with season three coming out, they finally chosen a side, revealed uh, of their ultimate thing. They are universalists. They want everybody to come together. doesn't matter what religion, what stripe, as long as you believe in Jesus. And they're trying to use the chosen now as, as an, a means of reaching all people to bring them to Mother Rome. So with that, Christian Coffee Time officially denounces The Chosen. I'm not a fan of it anymore. I, re I reject what they have done, and they have corrupted themselves. It is unbiblical now what they've done, and I denounce it. If you personally choose to keep watching it, that's your choice. Uh, you come to your own conclusions, do your own research, look into it yourself, and make sure you take your Bible with it. Don't judge by your feelings and opinions, your personal interpretations. Judge it by the Word of God. You see where they stand? Can a born-again Christian of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, by the Word of the living God, join hand-in-hand in hand fellowship with such a work as that? It's sad, it's upsetting, but it is what it is. So with that, there you go. That's my thoughts on that. Um, I wouldn't give them any money. I wouldn't buy any of their stuff, but if you, if you so wanted, it's up to you. Um, the first and second season, which, well, the first season was the best season. The second season was okay. Uh, you can watch them for free on YouTube. They have the whole series for free on YouTube for second season. Um, it's up to you. But then again, if you're sharing that with other people, you're telling other people that this whole series is okay. And they will then be deceived by when they come up to season three. So you want to be very careful with what you're promoting, with what you're, you're giving yourself over to. So you need to be aware. You need to be discerning. And discern all things by the word of God. What does scripture say? judge by the standard of the word of god so there you go okay um anything else before we wrap this up anything else before we wrap this up please go ahead ask away anything at all <clears throat> there uh, now that i'm remembering there there is something i wanted to share uh going back to who was it that asked about the dinosaurs I just remembered something. Who is it here that asked about the dinosaurs? Someone's asking about dinosaurs and uh, were they on the ark and did they survive the flood and all that kind of thing. 
Someone's asking about it. Um, because I had something in the list here with some pictures I wanted to show. Um, that also agree with the whole dinosaur thing. There we are. So there's a bunch of archaeological proofs that prove the Bible true. Now, this is one that I'll get to the dinosaur thing in a moment. See, uh, in witnessing and evangelism, there's some great stuff as well with, our, with uh, um, apologetics and proofs in, of history. Uh, there's that one. This one is, is amazing. As the Bible talks about when they were coming into the promised land, that uh, they crossed the River Jordan, the Lord rolled the waters back, and they and they were instructed each man of each tribe so 12 men one of each tribe was to take a stone and set the stones in the middle of of the river jordan where they crossed and guess what they found them they they dammed the river at a point to do some work uh, on uh, this one section but they found what where they they had dammed the river uh the waters went down and revealed the this there were 12 stones in sequence. This is a photo of it. Just like the Bible says. Um, then there's this one. And people argue about uh, Jerusalem, Israel belongs to the Jews. Well, <laughs> 2100 year old Jewish coins discovered in Modin, Israel in June 2016. Yeah, how did Israel occupy its own land? So there you go. Uh, this one, Isaiah scroll that they discovered, dating from 125 BC, is also one of the oldest of the Dead Sea Scrolls, so, some 1,000 years older than the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible known to us before the scrolls discovery, uh, proving the, uh, the authenticity of the Word of God. But speaking of Isaiah... They found this clay seal in Jerusalem. It's and it dates to 2,700 years ago. 2,000 years ago was Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was the prophet Isaiah. This dates back 2,700 years ago. It's a clay seal bearing the signature of the biblical prophet Isaiah, proving the prophet Isaiah as Scripture says. And <clears throat> speaking of dinosaurs, if you want to know more about dinosaurs and the Bible, check this out. These are dinosaur depictions that they have found in caves and instructions, in, inscriptions, sorry, um, pottery, all kinds of stuff. These are statues in the bottom left. They found people riding giant dinosaurs, and then we see a bunch here. Now, if you want to know more about this, you want to check it out on the website. Sorry for moving this around everywhere. Uh, you go to genesispark.com. Exhibits, evidence, historical, ancient dinosaur. And it'll, it'll show you all this kind of stuff. There's also another site, uh, Uparts. Uparts, out-of-place artifacts. Uparts uh, also has a ton of stuff there as well on dinosaurs proving the evidence of all this, just as the Bible talks about. 
and where's another one? Oh, this one's great. Here's another stone. It reads, to the divine Augusti Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. Proving that Pontius Pilate did exist, just like the Bible says. Some people deny the biblical accuracy. Well, how about this one? Victory Stila of Hazael. 841 BC, I killed Joram, son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, son of Joram, of the house of David. Just as 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 28 says, house of David, there it is, right there on the inscription, just like the Bible says, it's real. How about this one? Yet another one. Siloam inscription, aka Hezekiah's tunnel inscription, just like the Bible talked about and, and when they found this in the Gihon Springs, uh, with the inscription dating back to the time, proving exactly the story that the Bible says. Or, how about this one? The Megiddo Seal, Shema, servant of Jeroboam, just as 2 Kings 14.23 says. Yet again, proving the biblical accuracy. Or, how about this? And if we take a look here, uh, in the, just as the Bible talks about the crossing of the Red Sea, guess what's in the bottom of the Red Sea? Be other people have gone there to try uh, to, to see if it's true. Tons and tons of expeditions have gone there and they've all found the same thing. Chariot parts, chariots, uh, uh, chariot wheels, wagon wheels, horse skeletons, human skeletons, just like the Bible says. In Deuteronomy about the crossing of the Red Sea, these are pictures of the stuff that they found in the bottom of the Red Sea. Just like the Bible says. And how about this? This here is a 2,500 year old. Let's see if I can set it to the screen. One second. Some of these are really big pictures. Sorry about that. 2,500 year old seal may show Jews rebuilding Jerusalem after the first temple exile. Rare discoveries in the city of David confirm that after Babylonian destruction in 586 uh, uh, BC, the city was slowly resettled in Persian era with a revived bureaucracy as told in the Bible. Here's uh, artifacts they have found dating back and proving with inscriptions exactly as the Bible says. Yet again. And how about this? Here's some more clay seals, artifacts they found proving the stories of people, places, and things. Get Gedaliah, uh, Jukal, Lakish, so all that that mention of people, places, and things, just like the Bible says, exactly as Scripture says. Or how about this? They found in the deserts outside of Egypt. A giant stone with the entire story inscribed describing the seven-year famine of Egypt that Joseph saved Egypt from. And Joseph is mentioned in the inscription as the savior of Egypt, dating back to the time of Joseph, just like the Bible says. 
Or how about this? One second, I gotta pull this one up. Um <clears throat> Just a second. Bear with me one second. There it is. Okay. How about this? Whoop. I think I resized it to the screen. Now this is interesting. What you're looking at, okay, the top is a stone where someone has painted the name of God, Jehovah in old hebrew and the bottom picture is a satellite image of a topogra topographical map of israel and that little red dot in the center with the red with the yellow lettering says bethel that's the city of bethel and just below bethel the satellite image of israel from space shows the name of yahweh in Hebrew, actually engraved in the land. Now people say, well, wait a minute. No, hold up. Just as it says in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12. But go ye now unto my place, which is in Shiloh, Bethel, by Bethel, where I set my name at the first. And see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. He set his name in the land by Shiloh. And you see it right there. And it lines up perfectly with the Hebrew inscription of Yahweh. Just as Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 12 says. But if you go there now, this is from years ago. Uh, this was taken. But apparently, certain individuals have destroyed that area of the land, and you, I, I don't believe you can make out the name anymore. It's no longer really inscribed definite like that anymore. It's been scrubbed off. Uh, so it's a greatly unfortunate, but there is a photo of it there from being back before it was uh, before you can't find it. So there you go. Do I have any more here? Uh, oh, yep. There is one. What about this? Again, coin confirms Israel's state. Taking the coin from his pocket, he held it up to the camera and says, This coin, which says Freedom of Zion in Hebrew, was used by the Jews 2,000 years ago in the state of Israel. So, long before Islam. So, how did the Jews occupy their own land? So, yeah. Or how about this? Okay, we got uh, the pool at Gibeon, as the Bible talks about in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 13, and Jeremiah 41, 12. The house of David inscription. Yet another one proving it, about the house of David. Or the house of Yahweh, just as the Bible talks about, about the temple of Solomon. There's a there's a artifact that proves that, or the Jeroboam seal. Uh, we already showed that one before. So the the point of this, as we see it, is that the Bible is true, just like it says. And there is an awful lot more out there, tons and tons more artifacts and discoveries and everything that prove the Bible true. It's all true, folks. It's all true. It's all true. 
just like it says, it's all true. The people, the places, the things I didn't mention about the Valley of Battle where David and Goliath took place, they are finding so many thousands of arrowheads, uh, armor pieces, and all kinds of things proving the great battle was there, just as the Bible talks about or that they they about the mount sinai with all the inscriptions of the jewish inscriptions dating back to the time of moses or the fact they found noah's ark just as the bible says folks it's all real it's all real it's all true 100 it's all true start memorizing it start preaching it start believing it start taking it seriously it's all true. So with that, we're going to wrap that up there. Thank you so much for joining in, folks. We had a great time. This has been a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of stuff. So I hope this has been a help, a comfort, and a blessing to you. If you appreciate these studies, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe. Hit the notification bell icon so we put up new videos and check out all our other videos. we get got tons and tons of other content and other goodies in our playlists. Make sure you check it out. We have a playlist on proving the bible true that's what it's called and we have videos that uh, links to all different kinds of discoveries and uh, things that they've made uh, proving the accuracy of scripture make sure you check that out we have a uh, playlist on witnessing and evangelism and a bunch of other goods as well as check out our website christiancoffeetime.ca we got free downloadable gospel tracks uh, we have them available for print off or email uh, we have the e-tracks available there too make sure you get yourself those they're all free and if you're so interested, if you're so inclined, you can check out our uh, uh, links there. We have to our Etsy shop and all that. We got links to different gospel track bundles and uh, the, we got the wristbands and other kinds of goodies there as well as bookmarks and posters and notebooks uh, available there. If you're interested, make sure you check it out and a bunch of other stuff on our website. Links to all other platforms as well as to our podcasts and uh, our contact us link if you got questions so with that i wrapped up there thank you so much for joining in god bless you folks god bless all those who love our lord god jesus christ god bless all those who love his holy word hope to see you again and as always if i don't see you again i'll see you in the sky god bless